Our daughter um, lives in Maine, and she has business in Charleston, West Virginia this week on Tuesday. And so naturally, she decided to fly through Toledo uh, because she wanted to see her grandfather. Uh, what she's doing is recording him. She wanted to cook for him and clean for him, but she got her little flip digital camera and so far she's got at least three hours of recorded material from her grandfather because her grandfather, my father-in-law, is really uh, an interesting fella. He joined the service so he could fight in World War II at the age of 16. Snuck his way in and he has a lot of interesting war stories to tell that he only now he's beginning to tell them. <clears throat> and then uh, he came back after his tour of duty in Europe. He spent six extra months over there. That's where the best stories come from after the war was over. And then he came back and worked for some coal companies in West Virginia. And then eventually he moved to Toledo uh, where he met his uh, bride. He was working in the glass factories in Toledo. And so he's got lots of stuff to hear. And and Laura wants to go back home. She is back home to hear his stories. Interestingly, parenthetically, he lives on Homestead Street. And so she's gone back to the homestead, which is kind of odd to say because Laura only lived in Toledo her junior and senior year of high school, and then she went off to college. But for some reason, that's still home. Now, when we discovered that she was going to be going to West Virginia by way of Toledo this week, we knew that she would expect us to go up there. And so Friday night we took off and we headed toward Toledo. Uh, it wasn't a problem though, it's, we do this a lot. And I'm always happy to go. About Perrysburg, we make a call from the cell phone. We call Vito's Pizza, 693-333. And we, uh, we order a couple of pizzas because we like to take dinner uh, to dad and, and to our daughter in this case. And uh, we have to, we always drive to that place on Main Street and pick it up and then drive out to the house. I like going there because you see Vito's Pizza, not only do they have some very fine pizza, deep dish, extra cheese, please. Uh, they, they, um, they're in the building that was the old Frisch's Big Boy which was our, my haunt as a junior high and a senior high student. After peddling papers on Sunday morning, Larry uh, Schrader and Joe Brysocker and Bill Stockmaster and I and Pee Wee Monroe, we would all go after peddling papers to Frisch's Big Boy. Can you imagine sixth and seventh grade boys going to a restaurant and ordering breakfast? But that's what we would do. We'd go order breakfast, and then we would go to Joe Brysocker's and play poker, penny any poker, in the basement uh, until it was time for church. <laughs> it didn't seem odd to us at the time to do that. <laughs> That's what we did. <laughs> uh, in the high school days, it was one of those happy days places, Frisch's Big Boy. That was one of the stops on the cruising route that we would go on. Sometimes you'd go in and eat. A lot of times you'd just drive through the parking lot, see who was there. But that was stop number one on the cruising. I like going to Vito's. Because right across the street from the old Frisch's uh, big boy, Vito's Pizza, is 505 East Main Street. It is the building that my grandfather owned. Uh, uh, interestingly, I don't know how I ever got into this business given my past, uh, half of the store, they rented out to the state liquor 
uh, store. <laughs> the other half was DeShetler Heating and Cooling, a little heating and air conditioning business that my grandfather owned. Go out of the parking lot, we go down one block, and you come to the Huntington Bank on the corner of Star and Main, which is act we used to be Lucas County State Bank. My maternal grandmother was vice president in that bank. Continue down Main Street. This is not the most direct route to my father-in-law's house, by the way. <laughs> Go down one more block, and on the right-hand side, at the corner of Greenwood and uh, Main Street, is the Lock Branch Library. Tiny little brick library. Uh, certainly very small by today's standards. But I remember very well. That's where I learned to love to be read to. Didn't learn to love reading, but I love to be read to. It's children's hour in the basement of that library. Did a lot of high school papers there. It's up for sale now. It'd be kind of neat to buy that place and, and turn it into a home. It's not much bigger than a regular house. Continue to the end of the block where Main Street dead ends, and you're at the corner of Nevada and Main. And if you look from here, maybe to that wall, you'll see on the corner... Uh, Salem EUB Church. Well, it's now Salem United Methodist Church. It used to be EUB. Tiny little red brick church. It's where I was baptized. It's where I was confirmed. It's where I went all the way up to high school. And that little place. It's on the corner of Federal and Nevada. I've peddled papers on Federal Street. It's on the end of a block, you know, the short side of a block. So if you go to the next uh, end of that block, you're at Prentice Street. You'll turn left. That's right. That's the corner where my grandmother first talked to me about being a minister. Go down in the middle, right in the middle of the block, 637 Prentice Street, and you come to my grandmother and grandfather's house. Grandmother, as I've told you a hundred times, most influential woman in my life uh, next to my wife. And uh, it's just a tiny place, 1,200 square feet, three very small bedrooms, living room, dining room, and kitchen, and that's it. And my aunts and uncles and father were all raised there, uh, five kids, two uh, parents. And when all the aunts and uncles and cousins would gather at that place for Christmas usually, there would be 30 to 40 people in that house in joyful bedlam, just having a grand time at the holidays. It was always a wonderful place to be. Right across the street, is uh, what the old-timers call Flatiron Park, or it's actually Prentice Park. It's an, in the shape of an old antique flatiron. And um, it's where I learned to play checkers. I'm a checker champ, by the way. Uh, it's where I learned to do boondoggle. It's where I played home run derby and played basketball all through my high school, uh, infancy through high school. You go to the end of the corner, you turn right, that's Leonard Street, um, six. 36 Leonard is the house I grew up in. Actually, I started growing up at 624 Leonard Street, but the Lutheran Church bought that house and tore it down and put a parking lot up there. Uh, but uh, the, the place is still there. It's just covered with asphalt now. But two doors down, we moved to 637. Go to the next corner of the little triangle and uh, turn right, and you're on Elmore Street. 624 Elmore is where my parents brought me home as a baby. My dad was, I think, 20 years old. My mother was 19. The house is no longer there. The Lutheran Church bought that place, too. Uh, I think when I was about three or four years old, had a big mulberry tree in the back. I remember you could climb up and sit on the garage and eat mulberries till your fingers were black and blue with the stain. 
Um, but anyhow, the Lutheran Church tore that down. I'm nervous around Lutherans. <laughs> buying houses all the time. Then we go back to Prentice, go to the end, and then I start to retrace the steps that I used to walk, usually run to my girlfriend's house. Down Navarre to the corner of Oak Street and Navarre, turn left, run out to Oak Street to Oakdale, turn left again on Oakdale to Homestead, the house of my bride and my father-in-law and my daughter's grandfather, that place. I do it every time I go there. Every time. Turns out you can take the boy out of Toledo, but you can't take Toledo out of the boy. Are any of you guilty of doing that kind of thing? Going back to the old homestead? I know you are. I know you. In fact, as I know, some of you have actually taken your kids back to the places that were your stomping grounds, and it means nothing to them. But you want to show them, right? Doesn't matter if you're from Dayton or Kettering or Oakwood or Centerville or Spray, wherever it is, you take them back and you want to show them these places. Why do we go back? What is there about it? that draws us to these places where we want to touch our past. If you haven't figured it out yet, the fifth spiritual practice common to all three major world religions that have Abraham as their father is the spiritual practice of pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. So far, all of the spiritual practices or disciplines have had about them a routineness, a regularness about them. These things that help us return to a sacred normalcy, these things that help us discover God in a new way, these things that help us discover meaning for our lives, they have all had a pretty regular pattern to them. The holy meal, the fixed hour of prayer, Giving, Sabbath, all these things come to us in weekly or daily or at least monthly sequence. But, but pilgrimage is different. Pilgrimage calls us out away from the regular to do something entirely different. Uh, pilgrimage is where we, we're called to uh, go away from the routine to make a journey of special spiritual significance. Now, I looked up the word pilgrimage and pilgrim. Of course, you know, a pilgrim is a, a, uh, is a, a traveler or a wayfarer. And pilgrimage is, is a journey of someone who travels to a place or shrine. You know that, but you don't know probably where the word comes from. I, I dug down deep. I found its first derivations, but I dug a little deeper and found out it just comes from a couple Latin words, per agrum, which simply means to go across the field. Go across the field which is uh, kind of an interesting image. It suggests a, a curious soul who walks beyond the human boundaries that crosses the field, as it were, to touch a special place, a holy place with heart and soul and hand and feet. We travel for spiritual reasons. You probably already know that pilgrimage is one of the five pillars of the Muslim faith. Every 
able-bodied Muslim is required, is not optional, who can afford to, is required to take part in a hajj. That is to say, a trip to Mecca. Mecca, of course, is the place where five times every day Muslims bow. They put their prayer mats facing toward Mecca. It is when they get there, they walk seven times around the Kaaba. That is the building that Abraham and uh, Ishmael are supposed to have built. And of course, they're also when they make their hajj, they are to travel to Medina, where the mosque of the Prophet Muhammad is located. Jews went on pilgrimage too. You heard it read from the text to you just a little bit ago from Exodus. Jews living in Israel were required to go back to Jerusalem three times a year for Passover, for the festival of weeks, and for the feast of the tabernacles. Every year, Jews were supposed to go back to those places. And in fact, Jews to this day have the sense that, that Jerusalem is still their homeland. And even Jewish people in America try to get back to Jerusalem at least once in their life, many of them regularly. If, if you have the privilege of traveling there, one of the greetings, the traditional greetings of people in Israel that they say, especially to folks like you and me or to people they know who are leaving, they will say goodbye by saying, next year in Jerusalem. Because they expect you to come back to that place. That's home. As you know, Jesus went to Jerusalem at least three times a year from Galilee. The scripture lesson read to you a little bit ago records the third time in the book of John that Jesus goes back to Jerusalem for Passover. He's required to go back to Passover, not just because he's driven there by the will of God, but it's a part of the code of what it means to be a male Jew living in Jerusalem. We know, since this is the third time he's been there, that the Gospels must reflect three years of Jesus' adult life. That's one of the reasons we know it's about three years. Uh, Christians from the earliest days were encouraged to go on pilgrimage. Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine, went there in the year 326 uh, to look for holy sites and relics. St. Jerome in the 4th century encouraged Christians to go visit these sites. Why? Why should we pull apart to go to these places, go beyond our fields, as it were, to sites deemed to be holy? I think one of the reasons is to make them more real, just make things more real. You're probably aware of this, though you probably don't think about it much, is that everything you know about spirituality has come from somebody else. It's all secondhand information, right? I mean, everything I know about God and about Jesus and about the Bible has come to me from other people. Uh, my grandmother, my Sunday school teachers, uh, the Bible, uh, seminary, uh, churches I've served, People I've loved in those churches, people I've not loved so much in those churches. I have learned everything about spirituality from those kinds of places, or those kinds of people, rather. It's all secondhand, and it doesn't bother me that it's secondhand. 99.9% .9 of the stuff I know is secondhand. Two plus two equals four. I didn't discover that myself. Somebody taught me. But believe it or not, the person who taught me, the teacher who taught me that, did not discover that for herself. 
Somebody taught her that. And somebody taught her, and on and on it goes. You know, it's, it's most of our knowledge is based on that. But, but when you go on pilgrimage, that which is but an idea in your head that somebody else put there suddenly becomes much more real. It's like the Alps. You folks all know about the Alps, right? Those mountains in Europe. You're aware of them. You watched Lance Armstrong on the Tour de France, you know, you, you maybe watched Winter Olympics, you saw the Alps, maybe you've got a screensaver on your computer, it shows a picture of the Alps. They're incredible, you know they're on the map. But until you actually go and see the Matterhorn, it, it, it's just entirely different. You right now, probably most of you, have a two-dimensional idea, but when you go to the Alps and stand there, it's now three-dimensional. It's much more real. I remember the first time that I went to the Holy Land. Um, I didn't really want to go. Some people in our church were going. The bishop was having a trip and taking people, and they'd signed up to go, and they encouraged me. And, and, so, and finally, I... My wife and I just went, and it changed our lives. I, I looked at the Bible and Jesus and the territory so much differently than I ever did before. Uh, I, it's quite remarkable what you learn when you're in Galilee, for instance. Uh, Galilee is such a peaceful and serene place. The Sea of Galilee is not very big. Five, six miles, maybe seven at most across. You can see the other shore easily. Maybe nine miles in, in length. Not a very big thing, but it's so peaceful and beautiful. At the far northern end is Capernaum. And you, when you go there, at least I immediately knew why Jesus set his headquarters up there. It's a beautiful little spot on the north end of the lake. Uh, they show you what they believe to be St. Peter's house. Uh, where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. And not from here to that wall again, but 20, 30 yards away is the first century uh, synagogue that archaeologists have uncovered. They know it's a synagogue. They got the measurements. Right next to it was built a 4th century synagogue, four centuries in white stone. The, the, the first century is in black, uh, uh, black stone, almost like a basalt kind of stone. And you know, you know that Jesus was in that room. The floor is still there. You know he stood there to worship. You know he sat there to teach. You know that's the place where he healed the paralytic. And from there he went down to Peter, Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law. It's just, it's really something to be able to be in that spot and feel Jesus up through your feet, so to speak. And you visit the other sites around there. We went in November, and we went to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's unlike any city you've ever been to in your life, the old city, I should say, in particular. You know when you go in November, and we're going again, I think, in November of 2012, just in case you're interested. <laughs> we go in November. I always pictured Jesus until that day as walking around in sandals and in a linen robe and SPF 40 sunscreen on, you know? But it snowed in Jerusalem. It never occurred to me that in the winter Jesus was probably cold. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus was cold? Do you wonder how he bundled up to stay warm? 
Those kinds of things. You, know, you, you go to the uh, Mount of Olives, and I know there are lots of shrines and churches on the Mount of Olives, all the way down to the Kidron Valley and up to the eastern side of the Temple Mount. It's quite remarkable what you see and sense and feel because you know that even though it's changed a lot, they didn't move the mountain. And they didn't move the holy, uh, they didn't move Mount Zion where now the Dome of the Rock sits, but the eastern wall where they expected the Messiah to go up into the, through those gates to that mountaintop, to the temple. It's quite, because you know Jesus was up on that top where you are looking across that same valley to that same hill, and you know that Jesus wept over the city that wouldn't welcome him. And then you walk down the path, past all those centuries-old graves, because people wanted to be buried on that side of Jerusalem because they knew the Messiah was coming in through that gate, and they wanted to be the dead, wanted to be the first ones to see him. So the closer you could be buried to the eastern gate, the better. That stuff is so real, but it's so hard to get a sense for that unless you are there. Another reason people go on pilgrimage is for renewal and revelation. Sometimes we call it retreat. Do you folks ever go on retreat? Probably ought to go on retreat because spiritual things are revealed to you there. When Gandhi was wrestling with the question about how to best respond to, to the British tax on salt and the law that forbade the Indian people from taking the free and plentiful salt that was lying around the ocean's edge on every beach, he went into retreat for weeks. After many, many days of quiet reflection and prayer, the strategic answer finally came. He set off on a pilgrimage across India walking toward the ocean to take some salt. News of his pilgrimage spread, and his journey was widely reported. After many days, he finally reached the shore, and he stooped down, and he took a handful of sea salt that was plentifully available, as did millions of other Indian people. And the British Empire and their salt laws were sent reeling by that one act that came to him by revelation and retreat. Some people uh, go to visit shrines. They go to pilgrimage to seek help, divine help. You might not know this, but 20 million people a year go to the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe down in Mexico, many of them to seek healing help. Uh, try to guess if you can. It's a little quiz for you. Try to guess if you can. Which city in Paris, outside of Paris, in France, which city in France, outside of Paris, has the most hotel rooms per square kilometer or per square mile? Lourdes. That's right, Lourdes. <laughs> Six million people a year go to this little town of 15,000 people. That's all it is. <laughs> uh, go to visit, to go to the grotto, to get holy water. Some three million candles are burned there. They have to hire 20 people just to keep scraping the candle wax off of their streets and off the shrine pathway. It's an amazing thing. People will go to shrines to seek help and healing. Of course, there are folks that go on pilgrimage, pilgrimages to revere and to remember those who have gone on before us as well. 
we go to remember our roots. Uh, the last time we were at the Holy Land, our uh, daughter and son-in-law were with us. They wanted to go to Egypt. We had been there before, didn't really want to go back, but because they were going, we went with them. You get on a bus, you cross over the border into Egypt, and the first thing you do is you travel down the length of the Sinai Peninsula down to St. Catherine's, which is a monastery at the base of um, Mount Sinai the place where the law was given to Moses, the place where the burning bush is said to have been. They even got a little bush planted there that's supposed to mark the spot where the burning bush was. It's an interesting site. You try to get there before dark because the monastery doesn't have any lights. And so you try to get into this place and look around. One of the neat things, though, is, is a room that's about half of the size of this stage where it's, it's covered with a iron bars on the door, but you get to look in and you'll see in that room the skulls of all the monks that used to serve in that monastery over the past couple thousand years. They're, they're stacked up like grapefruit at Kroger, you know, on the, that's, you, and you, you think, well, that's a strange and macabre looking thing. But then you think, if you think about it further, those are our spiritual ancestors. Those are the people that kept the torch lit at Mount Sinai for us. When we got back to our, when we got to the hotel, it's called Morganland. Strange name for a place out in the middle of the Sinai Desert. Morganland. Uh, you see a little Bedouin tent out front and the guy selling scarabs and souvenirs. And we got inside uh, the lobby and we find out that there's a pilgrimage that you can go on. You can go up uh, Mount Sinai and watch the sunrise from the top of Mount Sinai for a few bucks. I didn't really want to do that. You know, I'm not a morning person. Uh, I figure if God wants me to see the sunrise, I'll schedule it later in the day. <laughs> you know, it's not my cup of tea. But my son-in-law wanted to go, and uh, my daughter wanted to go, but she had just found out she was pregnant. And so thought maybe we thought maybe she shouldn't make that strenuous a climb. So guess who gets nominated to go with the son-in-law? get up at 2.30 in the morning. There was a caravan of four buses, that, or five buses, that went uh, to the Sinai uh, place at, at, at Morganland, but I think 16 people got up to do this thing. My son-in-law and I were two of them. And we got on the bus and found a spot, and we drove it uh, three or four miles down to St. Catharines. I couldn't believe it when we got there. There were like 40 buses in the unlit parking lot. Where did they all come from? But here are all these people going up to climb Mount Sinai in darkness because there are no lights. It's just the lights from the stars and the moon, whatever moon there was that night. And so everybody's got kind We weren't smart. We didn't have flashlights. Everybody's uh, kind of an eerie silhouette. It's almost surreal. I nearly rear-ended, literally walked into the backside of a camel a couple of times because I couldn't find my way up the, up the path. When you're 300 feet from the top, there is a very, very small room. Uh, maybe it's uh, 20 by 20 that you can go in and get warm because it's cold on the top of Mount Sinai. You can go in and get warm, and they'll rent you a blanket for five bucks. And they'll sell you some really bad coffee if you drink coffee or bottled water or soft drinks or stale peanuts. And you sit in there until you're a little closer to when the sun rises. And there are on the walls of this place little one by eight boards that's made of 
thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who wrote their names, who've gone up that mountain before. Turns out that from the very first century, uh, pilgrims have been, priests were climbing up the same route every day to go up and watch the sunrise. I didn't know that. Anyhow, this is a more, much more modern building, but pilgrims still sign their name on the wall. I signed my name on the wall. And then we got ready. It's getting close to sunrise. So we went out and climbed the mountain and we got up to the top and there's no place to stand. There's no place to sit. There are so many people up there, so many pilgrims. We had to climb over the retaining wall to sit on a rocky ledge. It was overhanging about a 400-foot drop. I wouldn't do that again, but that's what we had to do. The point is, though, we weren't alone. There were so many thousands of pilgrims up there to watch the sunrise on Mount Sinai. You realize, as did Jesus, every time he went to Jerusalem, he connected with the covenant community. He was reminded that he was a part of a much, much larger group. I don't know if I'll really ever understand pilgrimage. I need to say that to you right up front. Here's what I do know. I do know that when a woman becomes pregnant, she is eagerly anticipating something moving inside her other than gas. I know this. They wait for that moment for the baby to stir. In the old days, you know what they called that? They called it a quickening. A quickening. And that word can be used for pilgrims who go to sacred places, uh, searching, uh, hoping that the divinity within them uh, quickens. The seeker or the pilgrim embarks on a journey with a receptive and searching heart, hoping to feel the divinity quicken within them. French free priest and philosopher Teilhard de Chardin, Dominique had to help me with the pronunciation. Uh, he said this. He said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Pretty cool. And I think that's true. And if that's true, it means that that homeland really isn't Toledo. It's really not Kettery. It's really not Centerville it, or Oakwood or wherever your ha family hails from. As a spiritual being, your home is not here. It is in the eternal city, the holy city, the kingdom of God. That's where it is. You know it to be true. It turns out that you can take the Christian out of the holy city but you can't take the holy city out of the Christian. And we're always drawn back there. We're always pulled back to those kind of places. I'll finish with this. I heard one time these places were described as thin places where the fabric between heaven and earth is stretched so thin that you can see it, and if you press against it, you can feel what's on the other side. Places like uh, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, 
or Mars Hill where Paul preached at the base of the Acropolis in Athens, or St. Peter's in Rome, or Mount Sinai in Egypt, or the garden tomb in Jerusalem, thin places. And we are drawn to those places because they are to us like home. We're encouraged to go to visit these places to recall, to renew, to remember, to request. But most of all, I think, we're called there to meet Jesus on the road and in a way like we never could otherwise. Amen.